Millennium Village is a world without borders that is dedicated to bringing people closer together through understanding. It's time to clap your paws, stomp your hooves, and ruffle your feathers. Discover Epcot. It's unlike any theme park on Earth. In this wondrous place, the fun and imagination of Disney come together with the innovations of the real world. W Radio, your information station. Welcome back to the WDW Radio Show. Thanks for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 19 for the week of June 17th, 2007. Let me start off by wishing all fathers, grandfathers, and fathers-to-be a very happy Father's Day, with a special thanks going to my father, who has always supported me and continues to be an inspiration. We'll start off this week's show with some news and views from Walt Disney World, including talk about the first change to the Haunted Mansion and new handheld devices available in the parks. Our visit to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill includes a rumor about a possible corporate partnership and new retail location in Walt Disney World, and some nearly news about the contemporary resort and big changes coming to resorts property-wide. This week's show will also include a few guest segments, as first, Jeff Pepper and I conduct a detailed Disney scene investigation at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Gary Chambers from the Mouse Lounge podcast joins me to look at hidden treasures of Walt Disney World on Main Street, USA. I'll also take a quick look at the Year of a Million Dreams promotion and update you on some of the statistics and fun facts. Jeff comes back to talk about one of Disney's forgotten characters' connections to Walt Disney World. The topics in this week's email segment include Cirque du Soleil's La Nuba, technology in the theme parks, the Backlot Theater, E-Ride Nights, young children in Walt Disney World, and more. I'll play more of your voicemails at the end of the show, so of course sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. And now, a WDW Radio Show News and Views Report, live from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. Let's start off this week's news and views from Walt Disney World segment with a moment of silence for the dearly departed Haunted Mansion. Well, while it's not gone for good, as of this past week, it has shuttered its doors and its gates for the entire summer season. This extended closure will afford the attraction its first major refurbishment in its 36-year history. Unspecified new technologies are expected to be implemented, as well as possibly new show scenes and maybe even the oft-sought-after 1,000th Ghosts. However, disappointed guests from around the globe were met this week by the sight of not a stoic butler or maid at the entrance, but tall wooden gates and a note from the Manson's current owner, Master Gracie, that reads, My dear guests, we're terribly sorry, but I'm afraid the haunted mansion is closed this summer for renovation. Meanwhile, I am roaming the netherworld in search of a few new spirits to join our family of happy haunts. Supernaturally, they'll be dying to meet you when you move in this fall. I do hope you'll hurry back. Until then, yours eternally, Master Gracie, your ghost host. And I'll put a picture up in the show notes this week of the gates um, so you can get an idea of exactly what it looks like. 
Disney has recently introduced a next-generation handheld assistive device to further enhance the experience for guests with disabilities. Designed by Disney's Imagineers, this new device combines multiple functions into one small, easy-to-use platform, including things like handheld captioning and closed captioning. By September, the devices will also provide amplified audio for assistive listening, and future plans call for the devices to provide descriptive audio for people who are blind or with low vision. The device itself is about the size of a PDA, and it uses wireless technology to enable the device to know its location and take appropriate pre-programmed actions. Disney's also exploring opportunities to make this technology available in venues outside their parks, where it could be used for things like synchronized captioning, audio translations, and other services in a wide variety of applications such as museums, movie theaters, tours, and transportation. For example, the new World of Coca-Cola store in Atlanta, which opened in May, uses this same technology. Now, the device is available and it's free of charge at all four Walt Disney World theme parks right now, although a $100 deposit, uh, which is refundable, is required. For further information uh, about these services and for other for guests with disabilities, you can contact Walt Disney World at 407 824 Four three two one, and I'll put these numbers in the show notes. You can also call uh, 407-827-5141 with your TTY device. Pleasure Island is now home to a new type of establishment, and it's the first of its kind on property, as Fuego by Sosa Cigars is now open. It's an upscale cigar bar set in an intimate lounge setting where premium wine, beer, spirits, and specialty coffees and other non-alcoholic beverages are served daily from 11 a.m. to 2 a.m. The inside, there are custom-designed, handcrafted wooden humidors that hold more than 100 facings of hand-rolled premium cigars from the legendary Fuente Fuente Opus X, which is about a $30 cigar, to the highly rated house brand Sosa Cigars. There's also an expanded terrace outside uh, to give people another place to sit uh, out there as well. The Sosa Family Cigars and Walt Disney World Resort have enjoyed a long-standing relationship for the past 10 years. You know that in downtown Disney's west side, there's also the Sosa Family Gar- Cigar Store, which also showcases a large humidor, and, uh, and you can actually get in there sometimes and see them actually hand-rolling the cigars right on site. Finally, the American Adventure is going to be closed for refurbishment from June 18th through the 21st, 2007, and the speculation is that this is when the uh, rumored modifications and upgrades uh, to the finale film will likely be made. We'll find out a little bit more uh, over the next week or so when the attraction reopens. And now, a trip to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill. Kicking off this week's visit to the Walt Disney World Rumor Mill, I've recently heard rumors of computers being installed at the Contemporary Resort with guests being able to do things like print tickets, fast passes, etc. Now, while that's not true, I do have details on what exactly is going on now and what is coming in the future, but I am going to report them as rumors until something comes out officially from Disney. Currently, Disney's Contemporary Resort is the pilot resort for a new program Disney is testing. As part of this program, desktop computers have been installed in all rooms in both the Tower and South Garden wings. Now, while no printing is currently available, guests do have free internet access, but only during the pilot program. After the pilot phrase is over, internet access will once again likely be $9.95 for 24 contiguous hours. Eventually, assuming the program is successful, 
Disney plans on installing computers with similar flat panel monitors in all resorts property-wide. In addition to guests being able to have internet access and obviously obviate the need for many people to bring their laptops, guests are going to have a variety of other benefits and services available to them, including access to things like bell services, dining reservations, and concierge. It's going to give guests access to information about the parks, the resorts, probably uh, things like operating times, dining locations, shopping venues, and more. I personally think this is very, very exciting because while I'll comment later about the use of handheld device and, and technology in the parks, I think this is an excellent benefit and convenience to guests on a number of levels. And I'm wondering, you know, so many things about what they're going to do uh, and, and what guests are going to be able to do and see. For example, will this now allow guests to make ADRs online themselves right from their rooms? That I am not quite sure of, but it'll be, it will be interesting to see. If you've been to the Contemporary and you've experienced using these computers or have any thoughts on this new program, please let me know via email, a voicemail, or by posting a message in the thread over at the WDW Radio forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Matt Ritchie sent in a pretty interesting rumor this week. This time it's about Disney and Apple. Matt wrote in and said, Longtime listener, first time tipster. Recently, I was at the Apple Worldwide Developer Conference, and while hobnobbing with some of the Apple execs, store managers, and programmers, I heard from several of them that Apple and Disney are in the process of readying an Apple flagship store, their biggest variety, for on-Disney property. My guess would be the Western Way expansion, but I suppose downtown Disney is just as likely. Anyway, love the show, makes the hour-long walks to work, training for the Walt Disney World Half Marathon much more pleasant, at least once a week, keep up the great work. Uh, Matt, thank you. You actually followed up this with another email a little bit uh, later on with some additional information. He says he's got some more information on the Apple Store rumor that he thought we'd like to know. He says he's not from the Orlando area, but this is what he was told by a close friend who is and who has a pretty close relationship with Apple Store employees in the area. It seems that Apple had originally thought Orlando wasn't a big enough market for an Apple Store at all. So for a long time, Tampa Bay was the closest location. With enough prodding from Apple enthusiasts, they finally opened a store in the mall at Millennia in October 2003. Still, they weren't taking any chances and opened the smallest Apple store they had opened to date. By 2005, they realized that Orlando was more than just a tourist destination and that it could easily support a full-size Apple store. So on September 24, 2005, they opened a second Apple store location in the Florida mall, this time a much larger, albeit still not anywhere near the largest, Apple store. It would seem that it wasn't too large to accommodate all the customers sent its way despite or perhaps as a result of tourists. So Apple quickly hit the drawing board again and began to expand their original Mall at Millennia Orlando location, set to reopen right around the time of this email as a much larger store, more akin to the Florida Mall locations. But where does the rumored Disney World Apple store fit into all this? Well, according to those in the know with Apple and the Orlando retail sector in general, Apple has done polling and found that a large number of its customers at its two existing locations are actually from out-of-state or out-of-city tourists. By opening an Apple retail store in the heart of Florida's tourist area, that's Disney, they could easily grow new customers while alleviating the stress of the overcrowding at other locations. Not to mention Steve Jobs has an ego, this is him, not me, as many people know, and seeing that glorious Apple logo on a giant glass building in the heart of downtown Disney sure would stroke it. Anyway, as with everything Disney, even more so Apple, will no doubt be kept in the dark on any official confirmation until they want us to know, but I thought you'd like a little more background on why an Apple Store may be coming to Disney World very soon. 
as a Disney fan and an Apple fan. I can't wait to see what happens in the weeks and months ahead. And I guess uh, this came from Matt Ritchie. Matt, thank you very much. I had heard from somebody else, too, about a rumored Apple store coming uh, to downtown Disney. This was a long, long time ago, but uh, this is starting to add a little bit more credibility to the rumor. There's, uh, this actually may even fuel some of the other rumors that are going on about the Virgin Mega Store in downtown Disney possibly closing, as well as Disney Quest possibly closing. Um, there's been talk about the ESPN zone coming in there. If the Virgin Megastore were to close, hypothetically speaking, I'm not saying that this is definitely a rumor or not, it would be an ideal location for a really big, huge Apple venue, uh, you know, right in the heart of downtown Disney. And again, we'll have to wait and see if this is something they're looking to do down in Western Way. From what, again, we understand, Apple uh, Disney is not taking any bids for any of that retail space. But as we hear more, we'll report it on the show. Over at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge, where construction is ongoing on the DVC Villas, I've heard from a couple of listeners who have had some issues with their rooms and rumors about them closing the lodge, or at least portions of the lodge, uh, due to the construction noise. Well, what I've come to find out is, while the lodge itself is not closing, nor are they closing any rooms off, what they are doing is, for some guests who have booked in Savannah View rooms, they are relocating guests, if they so choose, to either other accommodations in the lodge or other accommodations around property. One guest reported to me that they received a call from Disney prior to their stay saying that due to excessive complaints about construction noise, they not only offered to upgrade their rooms, but as compensation, they offered to let them stay in a two-bedroom villa at Saratoga Springs for a much discounted rate of only $137 per night. They were offered either that hotel at that rate or simply getting a full refund on the room if they so chose. Now, again, this is not happening for all guests, nor for every guest staying in a Savannah View room, but it does seem like it is an issue, and it may be something to look at if you are planning on staying at the Animal Kingdom Lodge in the coming weeks or months. Finally, just something really quick. Uh, I have received some photos from some listeners about the Soren queue. There, the uh, the main standby line is actually closed off and is behind construction walls, although there really is not very much uh, being leaked by Disney as to what is going on as yet, as to what may be there. Again, there's been a rumor for a long time that they are not going to only update the queue area, but it's going to be a much more entertaining, much more interactive thing. I guess we'll find out over the next few weeks and months exactly what's going on. Remember, if you have any rumors that you want to talk about, anything that you want to share, anything that you may have heard, by all means, please send them to me at lou at wdwradio.com. Disney scene investigation, Dinoland USA in Disney's Animal Kingdom is what many people consider to be really the ugly stepchild of Disney's Animal Kingdom. For a park that's so rich in, in beauty, in story, and theming, this land is often considered to be an afterthought, really devoid of the true magic that Imagineering puts into everything they do. It's been called everything from a Carnival Midway 
and not very much in a complimentary manner to so many other things. Well, this week, I, Jeff Pepper and I are going to try and help change your opinion uh, as we do this week's Disney scene investigation on just a small part of Dinoland uh, USA to really illustrate the careful details, planning, and yes, story that went into this portion of the land that makes up the southeast corner of Disney's Animal Kingdom. Now, of course, Jeff, I was going to have Matt Hotchberg come on to do this segment with me, talk all about Dino Land and Dinosaur, but, you know, we all know the story there. I didn't say it. Let's just move along. Nothing to see here. <laughs> like I said, Jeff, you know, Dino Land is rich in story. I think this um, whole area really is really overlooked. I think people bypass kind of the midway games and, and even some of the attractions. Uh, maybe they just kind of, you know, eat at Restaurantosaurus or they go to Dinosaur, spend some time standing in line for Nino, Nemo. But, you know, for those people that, that ride and enjoy Dinosaur, uh, I think they still kind of overlook a lot of the details that are in the attraction and outside the attraction and so much that really unify the entire land. That's what I was just about to say, Lou. The whole area is interconnected. Even um, uh, the di- uh, Chester and Hester's um, Dinorama is very, very interconnected to the rest of Dinoland, even though it came later. It almost, the way it came about, almost came about as a part of the story as well. Um, so there's just, there's just a lot of detail there that just went into it that I think you're right. People just bypass and just don't even see it. Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to kind of, as we talk, going to illustrate, there's really almost two... You know, two kind of themes that go through. There's the there's the serious side of Donna Land, and there's kind of the, you know, wacky, funny, prankstery, even tacky side of Donna Land. And they they're they're basically they're marrying the two. They're marrying the pop culture fascination with dinosaurs with the sort of the very serious paleontology, you know, side of you know science on it. And it's it's very very deeply textured. Um, every everything from Restaurantosaurus to to um, the Dino Institute, to the um, Chester and Hester's uh, Dinorama, all play a part in the whole overall story of the area. And I think what we should do is really explain that there is a story. There's an entire backstory to Dino Land, and that kind of, like you said, carries through through the buildings, through the attractions, uh, and whatnot. Because basically, this whole area starts off with this Dino Institute being founded after scientists supposedly unearthed a whole bunch of dinosaur bones at the site. And this was first kind of occupied by these very serious, stuffy researchers. You can find all kinds of notes and books and sight gags throughout the park. And then later on, you know, they had the um, they had the interns come in, and then, like I said, Chester's and Hester's was built on top of that. Yeah, basically, the whole backdrop, um, the whole setting is Diggs County. Um, it's Diggs County. Ostensibly, it's in Florida. I think there's some kind of reference at a couple places. Um, it might just be written material that it, it is in Florida. And basically, in 1947, they discovered um, dinosaur bones. They um, discovered it as a dig site. And what it was was is that a lot of people don't realize is the Restaurantosaurus building is kind of this weird amalgamation of different things. But it was originally a fishing lodge. And according to the backstory, the fishing lodge. You know, there's people there at the fishing lodge that discovered the bones and kind of decided to then go with it. And, it, you know, they contacted, you know, the paleontologists or whatever scientists who then came in. And that building actually expanded then to become the original Dino Institute, according to the storyline. And the Dino Institute that you see now, the kind of museum that's there, is home to the attraction Dinosaur, which at one point obviously was, was countdown to extinction before the movie came out. 
And yeah, and and as you were saying, um, the dynamic of the land as the Imagineers conceived it, it was that you were saying kind of like the balance between, you know, lightweight and you know heavy duty. Um, they they epitomize it in the story by the difference between the stodgy kind of scientific you know people that are like the the curators of um, the institute, and then they've got these interns and graduate students that come in and basically work the dig site, which is the boneyard. And there's this interaction between the two where the the grad students are playing all kinds of pranks. They're the ones that are, you know, putting a saurus on the end of everything. (laughs) Um, You know, they're playing um, off, you know, the the crusty old scientists. And if you look at a lot of the details, um, especially there's a bulletin board near the entrance, and then a lot of the details within Restaurantosaurus itself, you'll see this kind of interplay going on between these two camps. Right, and you'll see it both inside and outside of, of Restaurant of Source. One of the things I like the best are the lawn chairs and kind of laundry hanging up outside. Um, and if you look inside, there's all kinds of, um, like I said, you see you know, stuffed dinosaurs on the wall, evidencing it, supposing to make it look like a hunting lodge. But, um, you know, the thing that I like about Restaurant of Source, again, something people probably don't think about, is listen to the music that plays in there, because it's actually pretty funny. There's things like The End of the World as We Know It, there's Walk the Dinosaur by Was Not Was, so it's obviously all kind of connected and themed as well, and fun. And, they, and the cool thing there is, is that's the, I think it's the same kind of, it's the same loop that's going through the Boneyard, and they actually have DJs. There's a, there's a, um, a radio station identified, and the DJs are kind of doing you know, DJ bits in between the songs, so it's a very, very kind of cool backdrop, background kind of thing. Yeah, and, and inside the restaurant stores, you really should take some time and pay attention. Walk over to some of the uh, the notice boards and things like that on there because they really make it feel like it is a, a real working lodge and that there are people here who are posting messages. And, you know, there's poker games at night and, you know, movie nights and things like that. There's people with their lost keys and, and notices to the interns, uh, newspaper clippings, whatnot. Well, there's there's very specific characters here. Um, there, And that is what's really important because they carry over – they carry over from the dinosaur attraction. Um, in the dinosaur attraction, you had uh, the guy, the funny guy who talks to you at the beginning, who's trying to sneak you, you know, sneak the dinosaur back. Is Doctor Grant Seeker, um, the curator or the Wait, director? Do, of the do you know how many people don't get that? They don't get yeah. Grant <laughs> Seeker. He's seeking a Grant, <laughs> and that's Wallace Langham. And the only thing I know him from is Veronica's Closet. Not that I ever watched it, but I know that's the show that he was on. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to now here. I'm trying to. I'm drawing a blank, but I, it's Marsha, Doctor Marsh, Doctor Marsh, Doctor right. Marsh, uh, Helen, I think. Sure. What? Um, <laughs> yeah, Doctor. No. I'm here. We go, Doctor Helen Marsh. Um, this is good because if you, when I, I referenced a few minutes ago the bulletin board, there's uh, a newspaper type newsletter clipping that's up on the bulletin board, mm-hmm. and it has an entire article on Institute gets new director, right? And it talks about her coming on board. Well, this is in fact the. Um, Come on, help me out, Lou. Trivia here, the actress. <laughs> Felicia Rashad. Felicia Rashad. God, see, here again, you know, somebody somebody wrote in, you know, gave us feedback or, you know, told me that, you know, you know, I really, you're genuine when you forget things. Yeah, thanks. Buddy. I'm old. <laughs> we, we script this whole thing. Jeff forgets Felicia Rashad. Okay, move yeah. on. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's a whole bit where she has now, you know, become, taken over the directorship. Um, there's an actual character that's um, Dr. Bernard Dunn. He is basically the institute official that oversees all the grad students. Mm-hmm. And it's very humorous because um, on the bulletin board, there's like notes going back and forth 
between the grad students and you know one's from a one of them has a nickname animal and he's there going oh Weinstein Jenny Weinstein she's another one you know do you want to go out Tuesday night or something and there's a little note saying you know a little decorum folks please talk <laughs> done you know so there's just a lot of really humorous interplay and like I said the fact that this particular newsletter I'm speaking of it has like five or six different things on it that are just just great I mean it's just it's all this background I mean and they've got all these very distinct characters worked in and it's almost like a puzzle if you what I found myself doing was going through all the notices and trying to piece together who the various characters mm-hmm. were and how, you know, this guy has a crush on uh, Jenny Weinstein, who's <laughs> grad student, you know. He's after her, and they're trying to share a ride going to somewhere on a trip or something. You know, it's it's very detailed in that regard. Yeah, and like I said, there's you know, there's three professors. It's Bernard Dunn, Shirley Wu, Eugene McGee, and the students are Jenny Weinstein, Mark Animal Rios, and Sam Gonzalez. And I mention them because, like I said, you'll find those names throughout the entire land all, all over the place yeah in fact here's the, I, I i just pulled up a thing it was a there's a little card it's like single white female 19 adventurous athletic tall well-rounded single white female seeks single males a break from three-month monotony <laughs> it's a single white female is that you weinstein <laughs> let's sit on the bus together into town okay animal and yeah. that's you know a lick Ladies and gentlemen, a little decorum, please, Dr. Dunn. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, we'll put some of these pictures up in the show notes so you can get an idea, because I'm sure most people have actually just kind of walked by them. Uh, there's funny things like, you know, the Dino Institute schedule, 6 a.m. is breakfast, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, or 12, or dig, you know, 1 o'clock is lunch, and then dig, 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 <laughs> <Yeah>. dinner. <laughs> One, you know, going back to the characters, um, Dr. Marsh, that, that that actually isn't a name that they just kind of pulled out. Again, Grant Seeker, it, it's a funny name. He's, you know, the a kind of a, a play on words with the grad student. Well, Dr. Marsh was actually paying homage to an, uh, a real 19th century paleontologist who is Oth- Othniel Charles Marsh, who uh, had this rival who was Edward Drinker Cope. And they began what was known as the Bone Wars, which really was kind of the I have the bigger dino contest that turned ugly uh, at the time. And there was espionage and there was violence and there was all kinds of stuff. And I'll put a link up in the show notes so you can see more about uh, the real history behind the character that they named her after. And going back to the bulletin board for a second, there's a really, really cool um, element there. And what it is, is Jenny, the grad student, made a map. And I guess she was making it as a map as kind of a welcoming kind of guide to another grad student. And it, you know, it says, you know, there's a little note that says, sorry, I can't hang out with you today. I drew this map so you won't get lost. You owe me dinner. See you, Jenny. Well, the interesting thing that's very cool about this map is it's a representation of how Dino Land looked when the park opened Mm -hmm. in 98. And what that, you know, it was pre-Dinorama. And what it has marked on it is the actual large, it was like a tent, was it not? That was the Dinosaur Jubilee that had all the dinosaur bones. Right. Uh, Kind of like museum-esque in it. Um, and so it's very much set that up that way. And there's actually reference to Countdown to Extinction on the map as opposed to Dinosaur when they changed the, di- the name to Dinosaur to tie in to the animated film that was done. Right. And, and the, it's I'm sorry, go ahead. very, very neat. Yeah. No, I was going to say the, 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 uh, the tent area that you were making reference to that, that's obviously no longer there is where they were actually doing work on, you know, Bones when they were working on Dino Zoo, uh, yeah. which was the reproduction of the, you know, the largest original T-Rex. Yeah, and there's just all there's all kinds of really cool notes on it. I mean, they've got notes on a fossil preparation lab, the dinosaur jubilee, um, the, you know, Chester and Hester's. Yeah, it's tacky, but I love the dino stuff they sell here. It was the little note on there. They make reference. She makes reference to the Crustaceous Trail, um, 
and Restaurantosaurus, you know, the place to eat, part of the original Dino Institute, check out all the museum displays. So again, even this map is kind of pointing you to all these different elements throughout the area. Yeah, and, and you know, we could really go on, surprise, surprise, forever about some of these details because they do kind of, you know, from the, the second you kind of cross the Olden Gate Bridge, you see that and then you're immersed in this story. Uh, one of the things that I love going to, and again, this is when I get those funny looks from people, there's a number of cars parked all over the place. There's an old uh, Corvair, there's kind of a, a purplish Corvair parked on the side. Go over and take a look inside because it's pretty neat. On the dashboard, you're going to see uh, Mickey playing cards, and there's you know old tapes like from Fleetwood Mac. There's How to Fly to Be an Air Courier. There's McDonald's wrappers, tons of McDonald's wrappers in the back seat. <laughs> um, there's fake dinosaurs bones. There's a license plate that says hijinks. Um, again, a lot of just little, little details that they kind of threw in there um, just making reference to everything else that's going on as if it was one of the students or, or professors cars yeah and and really that you know kind of bringing us around um, to the place in Dinoland that as you were mentioning before there's so much loathing directed towards it <laughs> and that is the association with Chester and Hester's mm-hmm. and um, when you come over to that again there's some very interesting story elements at work here and Chester's and Hester's, you know, as going back in the story when, you know, prior to the Dino Institute and everything coming here, was a gas station. And what they did was they take, they basically, you know, it's the exploitation of <laughs> dinosaurs that they're playing to, which is very ingrained in our popular culture. Um, you know, dinosaurs, you know, there have been dinosaur parks, you know, littering roadside America for years and years and mm-hmm. years with their very tacky cement sculptures. And they wanted to kind of play off that to add, I think, a degree of whimsy to this area and, and to the park in general. In, when you when you look at Animal Kingdom, you know, you have some very, very serious elements going throughout, you know, um, the Asia and, you know, uh, Africa areas. And I think in this regard, they injected some really lightweight humor into the area. And, and I really enjoy it a lot because I'm a big roadside attraction person. But the Chester and Hester is basically, as the story goes... You know, they decided that, you know, they're going to take advantage of this whole Dino Institute moving in. So they turned their gas station into a tacky roadside attraction gift shop. Mm-hmm. And the amazing amount of detail that is in that store is just unbelievable. I mean, you can, I've literally walked around that store, you know, spent probably anywhere up to an hour going through everything on the walls. <laughs> Dork, um, I'm sorry. It, <laughs> yeah. People are going, you're doing what? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm with you. You gotta, you gotta look up. Yeah. They have comic books that are going back to the 60s and 70s, all dinosaur themed, mm-hmm. authentic, and that you know, Imagineers, you know, sent people out on buying trips for this stuff, <laughs> you know. And what they also do is one of the, the hallmarks of this whole Chester and Hester store is they take ordinary objects, they stick them on the wall, and then draw around them or create sort of these weird wacky sculptures of paper clips and just goofy <laughs> stuff to make them look dinosaur-esque right. um, there's one thing that's just amazing and it's actually the nozzle of the gas pump that they've turned upside down 
and then drew around it to form a brontosaurus. Right. <laughs> and I mean, and it's it's great because it also plays the fact that it used to be a gas station. Right. Um, and I think I think most people overlook that. I think most people don't realize as they're walking through, they're like, all right, this is just another you know tacky kind of decorated gift shop. Again, not catching the fact that there's a store. And if you look outside, you can really see that it was a, a gas a gas station. And there's there's a payphone on the wall, an old fashioned payphone on the wall, and there are actual graffiti, <laughs> faded graffiti surrounding the phone of people's numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, you know, tourists didn't do it. It's They're all 555 numbers, so, you know, <laughs> they're not real numbers. Another very, very cool element in there is that there's a little corner kind of opposite one of the cash registers that it has some shelves on it. And on those shelves, there are pictures of Chester and Hester. Right. There's an actual picture going back, I would assume, 40s, that's a picture of them in front of their gas station. And then there's another picture of them that shows them in their later years. Um, that's just there's a lot of depth to that, <laughs> you know, for just you know just to be kind of a knockoff kind of prop that they throw in a corner. They've really really thought through the whole thing. And there's actually Chester and Hester walk around characters too, walk around yeah. face characters that come out. But if you look, if you actually go outside the building and kind of if you come out of the store and head to the right, look down. I and mean, we're talking about looking up. Look down as well too. You're going to see that that's actually meant to be a street. And there's actually a street sign that says Diggs County, U.S. 498, obviously 498 being April 98, um, when Animal Kingdom first opened. And the, uh, you know, the tacky carnival games and the Midway games are actually supposed to be in the parking lot across the street. And look down and, and you'll see that it actually looks like it's in this parking lot. And that's where they set they set up shop. Yeah, the, the thing there is um, there's a rivalry that's kind of going on between the Dino Institute and Chester and Hester's. And it's basically the old curmudgeons from the Institute hate Chester and Hester. They just, <laughs> they hate the whole element, the whole tacky element. I think, some, like, people, I think some people who are listening to their podcast are going, yeah, I, I hate Chester and Hester's I, too. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's ironic. <laughs> and there's actual, like that newsletter I was telling you about, there's an actual little blurb on it that's like warning the, the grad students to stay away from Chester and Hester's and also, you know, be careful. There's Chester and Hester employees that are sneaking around the dig site trying to steal artifacts to sell in the store. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's there's that level. And, you know, and the backstory, there's a lot of backstory you can read about where they're actually saying that the Institute has tried for years to buy out Chester and Hester's so they can just raise it to the mm-hmm. ground and so everything will be dignified in the area. And the Chester and Hester and or their heirs or whatever that are running the store refuse to sell. And there's just this interesting battle and that extends to primeval world because when they went ahead and expanded into chester and hester went ahead and built the dinorama they were almost being spiteful in that okay we're going to take advantage of the dino institute but we're also going to make fun of them because the whole primeval world is very make very much making fun of countdown to extinction or the dinosaur attraction with the time traveling aspect and if you look at the cutouts and everything that are up there it's all these goofy scientists you know, doing time travel. Right. I was going to say that there's a couple of like, you know, toad-like cardboard cutouts of, you know, the, the stodgy woman with her glasses and, you know, the, the hunched over little, uh, you know, scientist working the controls and things like that. And you're right. And, and I think most people forget or don't realize that it's directly correlated to probably the dinosaur attraction that they just, that they just walked out of. The other thing that you would mention about how you were talking about the road, um, the interesting thing there is that um, I read that that was one of the most difficult things the Imagineers had to do in mm-hmm. this area because what they had to do was they had to recreate asphalt. Well, they couldn't use asphalt, <laughs> and there's you know and that actually is like sort of legendary in 
Disney park circles because going back to the opening of Disneyland in 1955, they used asphalt, it melted, everybody was, you know, women were getting their uh, heels stuck in the asphalt. And so again, in the Florida heat, they couldn't use asphalt, so they've actually used concrete and had then to texture it and paint it and then wear it down to resemble a worn out asphalt street. Yeah, basically cut into it, fill it, you know, then sand it or do whatever they had to do with it to give them, give it that kind of, you know, multi-decades-old look to it. Yeah, you know, your dorks like us are staring at it going, look at the cracks. Yeah. <laughs> My wife's going, why are you taking pictures of the ground? Your daughter's yeah. having magical moments left and right. You're taking pictures of dirt. And, uh, you know, and again, you know, getting back to some of the details, there's one really fun detail um, that I really love. And on the... Um, the entrance to Chester's and Hester's that uh, faces out onto looking across into Dinoland, there's an overhang there. And up above, kind of in the rafters of this overhang, there's a series of signs that kind of play to the old advertising signs that used to be on the side of the road where they would form poems one side after the other. Mm-hmm. And this, if you look at it from one direction, the poem reads, rough scaly skin, making you groan, don't despair, use fossil foam. <laughs> Well, then, if you go walk to the opposite end of the porch and look at the, the backsides of them, it basically says, when in Florida, visit Epcot. <laughs> it's great. And here again, I'll be honest with you, that was something I've been visiting, you know, it's almost 10 years now that, you know, that Animal Kingdom's been open. I just noticed that this past trip, you know, when we were down in uh, uh, last month. See, that's the advantage of going down solo. I told you, research trips, you got to do alone. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's a lot of signs like that. One of the ones I like, too, is... There's a uh, kind of playing off the old monster movies of the 50s. There's a big sign saying it came through the drive-thru and a thousand menus couldn't stop it. And obviously it's an advertisement for the sponsor of the land, who's McDonald's. And of course the stars of the film are Hap P. Meal, Hanover D. Fries, I.C. McNuggets, produced by Gordon Arches, things like that. Again, a total throwaway kind of thing. Still funny, just a little bit, you know, attention to detail. And they have kind of an old 50s style McDonald's in the picture as well. Well, yeah, it's interesting. There's two very, very big design elements that are there, but the way they're situated is they're just not in a direct line of sight. And the one is the big, large Welcome to Diggs County billboard mm-hmm. um, that kind of sits back to the back right-hand area behind Primeval Rural. And then there's also, right next to it, is another one, but again, it's very much out of the line of sight. It's just this overall advertising billboard again for Diggs County but it's listing all the different little things like visit the Dino Institute visit Crustaceous Trail you know visit Chester's and Hester's and actually it just in those two signs you can just read in much of the backstory right there of the area yeah and you see one is I know the one of them is kind of almost overgrown it's all the way in the back behind you know by like with the fences yeah. uh, by the parking yeah, lot the sign that- yeah, that's the one that says "Welcome to Diggs County," and then that's that's kind of funny because there there's an exit there, you know, going to the cast member area, and it has you know you know Dinoland parking or whatever, right. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know it actually it says Chester and Hester's Dinorama parking lot, and it's funny because it has fifty cents crossed off and is up to two dollars. Right, <laughs> and of the course the lot is full, which is the reason why it's closed off. And yeah, it's full, weekend, and then you know, know. And it's ten bucks to park out in the animal kingdom, <laughs> <you know? laughs> and they're still complaining about Dinorama. What's up? <laughs> Over the Dino Institute, inside the building itself, uh, as you get closer to, to boarding the attraction, there's a lot of details uh, as they're in well. I think one of the ones that I enjoy and probably one of the most notable ones are the pipes that are overhead. There's three pipes. One is yellow, one is red, one is white. And on there, there are the chemical makeup. There's the chemical formulas for ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise, obviously tributes to the sponsors who, who is McDonald's. 
And that was something I just only learned recently. Really? Um, just picked it up. Yeah, yeah, that was something that just one of those wow. Because I took <laughs> pictures of those tanks a bunch of times, and you know, hey. <laughs> and you know, if you look at the uh, if you look at your Time Rover vehicles, they actually have CTX on them, and that's for when it used the attraction used to be Countdown to Extinction before it changed over in 2000. Obviously, the change came when the dinosaur movie came out. And, and you know what? Not only did they change some of the things inside and outside, and the name of the attraction. You know, they actually changed the dinosaur that was outside too. It's now an iguanodon. Yeah. And he looks just like the character in, in the movie. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Synergy. And, it's right. <laughs> right. And if you look at the dedication plaque outside, you'll see that the, the building was dedicated April 22nd, 1978, which is exactly 20 years before Animal Kingdom opened on that day, which obviously evidences the fact that, supposed to evidence the fact, really, that the Dino Institute building was around for at least 20 years longer than Dino Land itself was. Mm-hmm. All right. So... I think we've pretty much illustrated again to people that we're big dorks based on what we look at around there. But but hopefully, Jeff, you know, people will start to pay attention because, you know, there are a lot of funny things. There's actually a lot of educational things there, like the rest of Animal Kingdom. If you look at some of the billboards, if you look at some of the signs, they actually do teach you and they can teach you and your kids about archaeology and about dinosaurs. And because that's, again, the original intention of the land. Uh, but, you know, let, let's just talk about people's opinion of it because it does get a lot of grief and I alluded to that at the, at the very beginning uh, people people's comments about Dino Land and specifically about Chester and Hester's Dinorama are for the most part not always the best um, you know you've got Triceratops Spin which is you know Dumbo slash Aladdin slash whatever but it, it has its place but there, there's a purpose I mean there, it's not you know that Disney said well we don't have any money we don't have any time let's just get some carnival rides together and throw it in there as a cheap thing. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a reason behind what they did. There, there's a lot of invoking of Walt when it comes to Dinorama, and there's this, they're, they're bringing up the fact that this was what Walt was trying to avoid when he did Disneyland. And, and it's, it's not necessarily an invalid point, but it's very much in context to that. I mean, this is what Walt did in Disneyland. Who's to say what Walt would have done 50 years later or 40 years later, you know, in a park that is very conceptually very far removed from Disneyland and what what I think is that you know Dino Land, Dinorama the thing that Disney does best is it takes and idealizes a lot of the things that are around us. Um, Epcot um, in their country representations idealizes these countries. Main Street is an idealization of turn of the century you know small town America these are places that very much everybody knows they never existed. I mean, the, the way you know, they're realized in a Disney park is what we wanted them to be as opposed to what they really were. And I think that Dinorama and Chester's and Hester's is just, again, it's taking roadside America, a very, very big part of our popular culture in the last 50 to 60 years, and it's taking that and playing homage to it and doing it in that idealistic kind of way. And I, as a fan of roadside America and roadside attractions, I, I am just very taken with it. I really, really like it a lot. And I think there's a sincerity there of intention with the Imagineers that that's what they were trying to get across. And I think what impresses me is that they nail it, as we were talking about before with the whole Chester and Hester's you know, Dino Treasure Store. There's so much thought and effort put into it and in trying to really recreate that roadside America feel that it's just it's brilliant on a level that I think a lot of people just are so blinded by. Right, I think you know they they see kind of just on the surface what it is and not what it's meant to be. And, I, and as somebody that, as a kid, drove cross country with my parents and stopped at these places 
ad nauseum. It, it, it is something I appreciate because I did kind of like that kitschy, very, you know, uh, almost kind of throwback to, to what I remember as a child doing as we drove across country in these kind of little out-of-the-way, rinky-dink kind of places. That's the kind of memories that it evoked for me, not like, you know, oh my God, what is this abomination here in Animal Kingdom that, again, some people say doesn't belong there at all on any level. Well, and it's, it's interesting because so many people point out the fact that it's such a contrast to the lushness of the rest of the park, such a contrast to Asia, such a contrast to Africa, where they're there are these very dynamic recreations of those actual settings. And I think that, you know, it's not all that far removed from other Disney parks conceptually. You know, there's a difference between Tomorrowland and, and Fantasyland. There's a difference between Frontierland and Adventureland. In that regard, there's a difference between Dinoland and, you know, and Asia or whatever. And the fact that you transition from these areas in Animal Kingdom so smoothly, you know, from a, from a landscaping and an architectural standpoint... That I think, you know, everybody says, you know, I guess when you walk into Dino Land, you're just hit with the garishness of that. But you're not seeing Dinorama from Asia. You're not seeing Dinorama from Africa. You're not really even seeing it until you're well into the area itself. So I, I, I don't really find that criticism really valid. I agree with you. Uh, I'm kind of on board with you, and maybe we, we're looking at it through rose-colored glasses because we are such kind of geeks about these kind of things. And, you know, I, I've heard kind of people almost grumbling. You know, the line for, for Nemo, at least at this point, often extends far down into um, Dino Ron, um, Chester and Hester's, all the way down kind of um, Highway 498. And it almost kind of looks out of place these people are online for Nemo but they're they're standing outside these things but again you got to take it for what it's meant to be like the big dinosaurs the big concretosaurus dinosaur I, I totally remember seeing these as a kid you know driving past these places at, at four o'clock in the morning with my parents on the side of the road and that's what it's meant to evoke like you said not just this these carnival games thrown in into a very serious place like Animal Kingdom and chances are as we were all growing up you know it was the more the pop culture element of dinosaurs that we were hit with first. I mean, we were very, you know, before we, you know, likely before many of us even went to a museum, you know, we were watching, you know, the movies on TV and reading the comic books and things like that. So I think, you know, that's really what the, the Imagineers and the designers were trying to capture, just that, you know, that yin and yang of the whole the whole dinosaur subject. And maybe if, if you're just, you know, maybe because either you, you haven't driven or because you're not familiar or like the whole kind of old-style Route 66 view of, of old Americana. Maybe that's why it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, everybody kind of doesn't react the same way to it. And, you know, and just also to kind of get back to where we started, you know, the whole segment is, you know, you and I were talking about it, um, and we, we, we've all, you know, since, you know, we've gotten together a lot, and when we were, especially when we were in Florida together, you know, we talk about, you know, again, how don't rush through. We always tell people, don't rush through, and that's really important when it comes to Animal Kingdom as a whole, and especially Dino Land. Um, people have, you know, a lot of folks have this commando, you know, the unofficial guide touring plan kind of mindset. Ding. Apolog- apologies to <laughs> apologies to Len, um, but there is this mindset that you know you get out of one queue line and or you get off one attraction and you run to the next attraction because you're on schedule and you want to minimize your wait times. And so, you know, you're really, you know, you run to Dino Land. You ride dinosaur, and the next thing you know, you're heading off to get on Everest, or you're heading over to you know watch um, Finding Nemo. Right. You have to spend time in Animal Kingdom. You have to walk the trails. You you have to spend time looking at 
you know, these things because there's a story being told there. And when you look at Dino Land and you look at the story that's there, that is in itself a presentation. That is something for you to kind of enjoy from beginning to end. And again, I'll, I'll be interested to see what kind of feedback we get as to people saying, gee, I never, I never knew that was all there. And that's the point. Um, you just you got to slow down sometimes. And Animal Kingdom is very different in that regard from Magic Kingdom and even Epcot to some degree. You know that there's a story there. There's stories all throughout the park. And Dino Land, as you know, point of fact, tells a very, very, very deep story. All right. And, and you know, raise your hand if you've walked Cretaceous Trail. You know, I, I didn't think so. Not many people are probably raising their hands. But you know, we talked about this offline about Animal Kingdom as a whole and people call it the half day park and it's it's you know a mini park and and so many different things and you can and again you can blow through it and be done by noon but that's not the intent of the park just like it's not the intent of MGM this more so than any other place in Walt Disney World is where Disney wanted you to take your time to explore to interact with your environment you know even as you're walking you know through uh, you know, Discovery Island to, to get to Africa. They want you to, to slow down and walk through those trails and, and look at the animals. And that's why the, the park is so expansive and there is so much to see. Again, I think people overlook and are in such a rush to kind of get by. Again, I've used Expedition Everest as a perfect example. I think what they do in the queue, the amount of detail in there is awesome because there's so much to see and there's such a story to follow that you should dare I say, almost enjoy standing on line for as long as you might in the standby line because you can really pay attention to, to what they've put in there. Yeah, it's I, it's funny. I talk to people and, you know, I'll talk to them about the Pongani Trail or the Maharaja Jungle Trek and they're going, oh, you know, I haven't done that. I think I did that once. Yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, are you crazy? <laughs> you know, those are the things I do every every trip I, I do them every trip and there's a joy in them because you know sometimes they're they're crowded they can be a little bit elbow to elbow at times but generally they're not and generally you're not waiting in a line you're not kind of you know standing there whistling and staring at the sky or whatever you're walking right through and they're just so immersive and I'm just amazed that you know here is a park that is essentially a zoological park in many ways you know and that was primarily its function when it was designed and yet that very aspect of it is being disregarded because people just have that, you know, let's go ride the rides mindset. Right. And we're not saying that you have to be like us and, you know, stare at the ground and read every little sign and poster and, you know, detail that's on the floors and the walls, but look on a global scale at what they're trying to to show you, you know, enjoy everything that's going on in in the Mombasa marketplace and and along the character trails, uh, you know, the, uh, the Pangani trails and things like that, because there is a story that that, are, that is to be told, and there's a lot of things that you can stop and, and interact with, and I think that's the important part. All right, down off our soapboxes. <laughs> <laughs> I need a step ladder. Wait a second. Okay, <laughs> we, we got up pretty high, didn't we? <laughs> well, you know what? Look, we're not. I don't think it's it's trying to be soapboxes. I think we're trying to just open people's eyes up a little bit to things that maybe they're overlooking because they're such in the mindset. Hey, I'm only here for a couple of days. I gotta get Everest. I gotta get this. I gotta get Lion King, and I gotta get out get back to the room and get back all right maybe we are on a soapbox (laughs) (laughs) animal kingdom is not a half day park and we just tried to do our little fair share to prove it and you might not you look jeff i think a lot of people are still going to disagree with us about chester and hester specifically and dino land and 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 what that is over there and how they feel it may not belong but I, i would definitely like people to weigh in let us know if they either will hopefully go back and take a look with a little more detail or is it still something that they're going to blow by and, and hopefully that they, you know, eventually bulldoze someday in, in lieu of a <laughs> of another attraction or another land. 
And if they do, I guarantee you that there will be a story behind it. That's right. And if you um, if you totally disagree with us, it's 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. If you like this segment, it's lou at wdwradio.com or call my voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. Jeff, thanks again, buddy, for kind of taking this uh, very long-winded soapboxy trip through, uh, through Dinoland. Everybody wants the If you've listened to the show in the past, you know what a big fan I am of not only the cast members, but the entire year of A Million Dreams promotion that's going on right now. I covered it uh, and gave you a little update a few weeks ago on what, is, what was going on, and I thought I'd share with you some of the little fun facts that I, I've come to learn uh, recently to give you a little idea of what else has been happening with the year of A Million Dreams. To date, the, no, the total number of dreams that have been given away is 618,915 and counting. The most awarded prizes, at least those that are valued at more than $25, are the overnight stays at the Mickey Mouse Penthouse at Disneyland and the Cinderella Castle Suite at the Magic Kingdom. The person that won the dreams from the farthest away from Walt Disney World was Stephen Brannigan from Glenthros, Scotland, who won Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party tickets at the Magic Kingdom. Now, the state with the most overall dream winners is, obviously, California. And the country outside the U.S. with the most overall dream winners is Canada. The most common first name of people that have won a dream is David, and the biggest single group to win a dreams giveaway was 100, and that was Dream Fast Passes on multiple times. The total number of Dream Mouse Ears that have been given away is 124,125. The total number of Dream Fast Pass badges is 248,476, and the total number of Dream Pin and Lanyard sets is 208,576. And at any one time, there's about 80 people who are members of the Walt Disney World Dream Squad. So if you are looking for them in and around the parks, you can see why they're kind of spread out, you know, between not only the four parks, but downtown Disney. So you might not see them all the time and everywhere. But again, love the promotion. Just wanted to share with you some of those facts. Just thought they were pretty interesting. And uh, if you've ever won something from the uh, Year of a Million Dreams promotion, if you've ever won one of the big dreams, especially one of the stays in Cinderella Castle, by all means, please let us know. Send us an email or voicemail if you want to share any kind of information or pictures. We think that would be great. For this week's Hidden Treasure of Walt Disney World segment, I wanted to bring on a very special guest, and it's a name you may or may not have heard before, but is a good friend of the show, and that's Gary Chambers from the Mouse Lounge Podcast. Gary, welcome, my friend. My pleasure to be here, Lou. Absolutely my pleasure, entirely. You may actually recognize Gary's voice. He did uh, with Jonathan the great Muppet intro from uh, a week or so ago, and again, he hosts the Mouse Lounge Podcast. podcast gary this this is your chance to quickly shamelessly plug and tell everybody a little bit about uh your show and what you do out there well well hi ho everyone this is kermit d frog advertising for free on (laughs) wdw radio the mouse lounge podcast which i rate as absolutely must be listened to hi everybody (laughs) gary from the mouse lounge in his genuine clothes and not the uh the green frogs clothes um 
nice to uh, be on your show, Lou. This is it's an incredible opportunity to just be able to talk with you and talk about something that we're both really passionate about. So this is great. Yeah, well, Gary and I had a chance to meet back in January. We hooked up in Walt Disney World with. Uh, we were down there with my family and spent some time together. And actually, at a place near one of the other hidden treasures we're going to cover on an upcoming show. But for this show, we wanted to talk about actually one of my personal favorites. And it's a personal favorite of mine for a number of reasons. And that's over at the old, well, I still call it the Walt Disney Story Theater. But over at the Exposition Hall on Main Street, USA, all the way in the back. Uh, if you go all the way into the back of the Exposition Hall by the Hall of Moving Pictures, there's a large mural at the back of the building there. And uh, I, I think it's definitely one of Walt Disney World's hidden treasures. Gary, I know you agree. Absolutely. Back in the day when the show was still running, before they moved it all over to the MGM Studios, they used to have a pre-show, and a cast member would actually walk the length of the mural and talk about the various features and characters that were part of the Disney pantheon that are on that mural. And it's a true piece of art that runs the entire length of the back wall. And among the things that make that location special to me is that, first of all, it's out of the way. So when you get to the back, it's generally quiet. Of course, it's air-conditioned. And if you get into one of those vicious Florida thunderstorms, so it's hot, it's humid, and it's raining, you can duck in there if you happen to be on Main Street and get into the back. And it's very quiet. And you can just take your time. Your blood pressure tends to drop. You realize that you're starving. That's, a, that's where I realize that I'm starving is when I'm back there. And uh, the various show elements are still there. As I recall, Lou, don't they have the, um, the cutout sets where you could actually stick your head through and, and take, uh, take photographs? Just a real photo op with your family? Yeah, they have, they have a couple of them back there. For a while, they actually had a Mr. Toad's Wild Ride uh, ride car back there. They also had a cutout from, I think it was Steamboat Willie and from Toy Story. Um, I know that the Toy Story is a rocket ship with the uh, little green men that line the bottom, and then you stick your head through, and it's like you're sticking your head through a porthole in the rocket ship. And they've got one for Snow White. It was down there when I was in when I was there in January, and they've got one for 101 Dalmatians. Right. But what makes it really eerie and kind of magical in a way is that the film was shown on a movie screen that was set back from a stage. An actual stage is still there, mm -hmm. and all of the seating is still there. So it's a, it's a real nice Disney detail for me because you can go back there and not only get one-on-one -on -one with the characters as in terms of history and how they evolved from Snow White all the way through. I think it's, um, what was the last one that they have on the board? I think it was 2000, 2001. Was it uh, Hercules? I think it's The Great Mouse Detective is the last thing that they put up there. 1986. Okay, so it didn't go as far as I had thought. But then you can, once you've seen the mural and appreciate the art of that, you can just sit in one of those seats and just kind of imagine yourself watching the show and just relax and, you know, be with your family. It's a real nice place to retreat. And really it truly nice it truly is hidden because most people, even if you do walk into the Exposition Hall building, whether it is to go to the Photo Center or whether it is to go to Tony's, most people don't walk in the back because the, the hallways uh, on either side when you, when you first enter, the, the Hall of the Still Images and the Hall of the Digital Technologies, most people don't venture back because a lot of the photo ops that you could pay for there, kind of the green screen things, seem to be abandoned. So, so people don't make their way and at the end of those hallways were the original two identical 300-seat theaters where they, shoot, where they shown the Walt Disney story. But the mural 
that's on the back wall is absolutely beautiful. It's just, it's really, it's a hand-painted mural with basically any, you know, primary and secondary character you can think of. You'll, you'll obviously have Mickey Mouse in the center, and it kind of follows along through the history of Walt Disney Animation. You'll find Cinderella, you'll find Pluto, you'll find the three uh, caballeros in there. In the center of the mural is a painted plaque that reads, To translate the world's great fairy tales, thrilling legends, stirring folk tales into visual, theatrical presentations, and to get back the warm response of audience in many lands has been for me an experience and a lifetime satisfaction beyond all value, Walt Disney. And again, Gary, like we said, it's a hidden treasure. Most people don't know about it. It's a great place to relax. It's a great place. They still show uh, old cartoons in the theater. If you do want to go and kind of take a nap, or if you are a fan of the theater, uh, of the cartoons, kind of one, like the ones they used to show over in the Main Street Cinema, I highly recommend you go and check it out. And by all means, make sure you go. If you're a fan of animation, pay some, pay some, take some time and pay some attention to the, uh, to the mural at the back of the theater. So that's it. That's this week's Hidden Treasure of Walt Disney World. That's the mural at the back of the old Walt Disney Story Theater at the Exposition Hall on Main Street. Gary Chambers from the Mouse Lounge podcast at mouselounge.com. Thank you very much, buddy, for coming on and helping me out with this segment. My pleasure. Good to be here. A few weeks ago, we did a segment on the show where we talked about Goofy and his connection to the parks in honor of his 75th birthday. And the response to that was really, really very well received. So I wanted to bring Jeff Pepper back, actually at the request of some of you, to come back and talk about some other character connections to the park. Jeff, welcome back, buddy. Thanks, Lou. Good to be here. You, you are the animation guru, and, uh, and this is definitely right up your alley, talking about uh, characters and their connection to the parks. So I'm going to give you free reign to pick the next character that you want to talk about and uh, kind of talk about where we might find this character in and around Walt Disney World. Well, you know, I thought what we do is, you know, Goofy, Donald, Mickey, Minnie, they're pretty easy. You know, you can't, you can't you know, pretty much turn around in a park without bumping into some aspect of those guys. But let's, you know, let's kind of take a look at some, some, some characters, and we'll take a look at one specifically today that's off the radar, and he's featured very prominently in a place, and people see him, and they kind of don't know who he is. So we're going to head over to the Wilderness Lodge, and we're going to go into the lobby, and we're going to head over to, I believe it's called the Wilderness Mercantile. Am I correct on, on the name of the shop? I believe so. Okay. And everybody knows, very prominently, there's a totem pole that uh, is situated at the entrance to that. And on that totem pole, you have uh, the characters, and it's uh, Mickey, Goofy, Donald. But on the bottom of the totem pole, there's a bear. And that bear, I oftentimes I've been in there shopping or been in the lobby, and I've heard people go by and say, who's the bear? <laughs> well, the bear is Humphrey. Humphrey was um, a cartoon character for Disney that was born in the 1950s. Um, he kind of ostensibly was created they say in a goofy cartoon in 1950 called Hold That Pose, but it really didn't look like him, so it's kind of always been this kind of weird you know, how that is goofy, but that's kind of how the, the Disney company, you know, says where he emerged. But he ended up being in a series of Donald Duck cartoons, and then actually 
starred in two cartoons of his own, and he was famous for co-starring with uh, Ranger Woodlore, who was the, the little pear-shaped ranger that um, appeared in a number of cartoons in the 50s and also appeared on the Disney television show in the 60s a few times. But that is Humphrey Bear, and he was famous in the 1950s, especially on the Mickey Mouse Club, for a song called The Humphrey Hop, and there might be a few very extreme Disney enthusiasts out there that might be familiar with that. And uh, we'll, we'll play a little bit of the audio for that uh, on the outro or something for you if you want to get a kick out of that. So that's who that is. He's Humphrey Bear. And he could have been a big star, but cartoons basically died overnight in the 1950s. And so Humphrey kind of went by the boards. But um, that's who it is. Jeff, isn't, uh, isn't Humphrey also uh, at the entrance to the lodge on, on a sign on one of the signs at the entrance? Yeah, actually, as you're driving into the lodge, there is, um, as you're approaching the main uh, entrance there, there's a sign that says Bear Crossing. And on that top of the sign, right above the, you know, the actual text of the sign, there's sort of like a black kind of metal silhouette. And it's a picture of, well, it's a silhouette, I'm sorry, of Mickey and Humphrey um, sort of walking across. And that, that, that is Humphrey Bear. Very distinctly. So really, almost between you know Mickey and Humphrey, they're almost kind of like the would you almost call them maybe the unofficial mascots of the lodge? Yeah, very much so. Because when when the lodge opened, that was it was actually kind of interesting. I happened to be at Disney World and when they were doing an open house for the Wilderness Lodge um, at the time, my wife uh, was still a cast member, and we they had they had like a cast member exclusive open house that we attended, and all of the initial wave of merchandise. Um, had Humphrey Bear featured on it. Um, it was, you know, they had the classic kind of, you know, Wilderness Lodge, you know, rustic kind of look of merchandise. But then all the kids' stuff had Humphrey, Humphrey and Donald. Um, I'm not sure. I can't remember if Ranger Woodlore was actually featured on any merchandise. He might have been. Um, on and off through the years, I mean, he's kind of showed up on license plates, on pins here and there. Um, in the recent years, I haven't seen him quite as much as he used to be. Um, but it was very interesting because, like I said, I they, they, they pulled him out. I mean, Ranger Woodlore and Humphrey were very distinctly, you know, elements of, you know, National Park kind of-esque, you know, settings. And so they were kind of a good fit, you know, for the Wilderness Lodge when the Wilderness Lodge opened. And But again, it's just very interesting because so many of the people that are there just don't know who he is. And they're always kind of asking, you know, who's the bear? Well, I can say this, that if you are a fan of Humphrey Bear or you want to know who Humphrey Bear is... You have not seen the last of them, and I'm not talking about it at the Wilderness Lodge, because I've alluded to this in the past. Let's just say that you will be seeing Humphrey Bear again early 2008 over at the Animal Kingdom. That makes me very excited. Luke. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and he's not the only uh, the heat, well, he's not the only one you're going to see over there. But anyway, you haven't seen the last of Humphrey Bear. But uh, yeah, we're, we're going to post some of Jeff's pictures up in the show notes. Uh, to give you an idea of, of maybe better who Humphrey Bear is. Maybe you know the face, but you don't know um, the name, as well as a link over to one of Jeff's blogs posts over at 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. And, uh, Jeff, you know, I think we'll, we'll kind of do this every so often. We'll talk about some of these other secondary, some obscure characters and their relationships in and around Walt Disney World. It's fun. Let's do it. All right. Jeff, thank you again for coming on the show, and uh, we'll see you again. Okay, always a pleasure, Lou. Thank you.
I want to thank you all for the wonderful questions and feedback you've sent me over the past few weeks via email. Like I said, I've tried to answer many of them via email, but we have a lot to get to on the show, so let's get started. The first one is from Kirsty Miller in the UK, who says, Lou, I've heard you talking about the new Toy Story ride at Disney MGM Studios. Have you any idea of where in the park it will be? Yes, it's going to be on Mickey Avenue. But what are your opinions on the Cirque du Soleil show, Lanuba? I'm going to be in Orlando June 25th through July 9th when we'll be seeing the show. Keep up the great work, Kirsty. Kirsty, you are going at a great time of year, and I am so happy to hear that you are going to be going to see Cirque du Soleil. That is the show located at Downtown Disney's West Side. The name Cirque du Soleil literally means Circus of the Sun, but it's actually that the name itself is derived from the French phrase Fair la Nuba, which means to party or live it up. It was built into a 1,671-seat theater, which is the first of its kind for any Cirque show. It's a part circus, part acrobatic kind of show, um, typical Cirque du Soleil style show, but definitely with a Disney flair. I think there's something for everybody. I think it's Broadway uh, caliber, if not even more so. The show runs about 90 minutes. It is an absolute must-do, uh, definitely for a, a special event if you're going to be with uh, your family. Uh, I think the show is really just breathtaking. I've seen many of the Cirque du, uh, shows in Las Vegas, and I think this one ranks among the very best if I had any tips, if you are thinking about going, I like to sit in the center on the second level because I think there's so much going on around and above you. If you are going to take kids, uh, there's a, that's always been a concern. How young is too young? I think maybe a, a child four or five or older would definitely enjoy the show. Uh, I think they would definitely get a lot out of it. Ticket prices basically range from about $63 to $112 for adults and $50 to $90 for children. I'll put some links up in this week's show notes so you can find out more about Cirque du Soleil, Lanuba. But again, very, very, my highest recommendation for something to do down in Walt Disney World. Next email says, Hey Lou, I gotta say I love the show and I don't much mind the long format as it gives me something entertaining to listen to on my long commute. Anyway, I heard talking about the Nintendo DS taking it to the parks to get special booty in the Pirates at World's End game, and it's been speculated that eventually you'll be able to download attraction-specific content, such as in A Ghost at the Haunted Mansion. That gave me an idea. What if that game also had a section which you could download information, such as current wait times, fast pass times, maps, trivia, weather reports, and the like? Imagine waiting in a queue and reading different facts about the ride you're about to go on or planning your next course of action from across the park or even elsewhere in Walt Disney World or maybe even daily scavenger hunts. Of course, in addition, you'd have the aforementioned attraction-based content and loads of minigames. Think of the branding possibilities, DSs with attraction or park-themed exteriors and the like. Do you think Disney would ever produce something like this and can you think of any other content that you think would be appropriate? Thanks and regards. Nick. Nick, thank you for the question, and uh, it's actually something I was going to talk about in the news at some point, but really, you're really giving me a great avenue to go ahead and address this topic, because although I am a big, big tech geek, I'm all about gadgets and gizmos aplenty, I got who's it and what's it galore, ask my wife, thingamabobs, I got plenty, but who cares, because while I want more, believe it or not, I don't want it in the parks. Why? Well, Really, it comes down to this, is that I hate to see kids and even adults, I'd hate to see them walking around staring down at their video games. You see it all the time. You see kids, you know, in the malls. You see them at restaurants. You see them all over the place staring at their games instead of maybe, you know, talking to their parents or doing whatever they're supposed to be doing. And at Disney World, 
you're not going to have them not interacting with their family. And I hate to sound this way, but it's not really what Walt wanted people to do at his parks. I mean, the purpose of these parks was so that he could spend time with his kids and everybody have fun together. And again, I think these things would be great in the car. I think your ideas are wonderful. Something to do in the car, on the plane, maybe back at the room at night, you know, after you go to the parks or, or, or taking a break during the day. But at Walt Disney World, it's really about making memories together, not, you know, Johnny, you know, put down your DS and, and you know, let's get on the ride or, or you know, eat your dinner or whatnot. Uh, I, I think there's so much to see and so much to appreciate at Walt Disney World and so much that is overlooked already. And, you know, I feel that way by virtue of the segments that I do here on the show. Uh, you know, now, again, don't get me wrong. While it's okay to take your trivia book along <laughs> and quiz each other in line. Don't forget our two for 20 special is still going on. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. No, it really is. But um it's the purpose of taking something like that along or like a hidden Mickey's book is so that you and your family or friends can have fun together. Staring at a screen is not going to allow you to do that. You're now disconnecting your kids and the parents from each other and the environment. You know, again, the possibilities, like you said, for the, the, the advancements of technology and the interactivity are endless, but they're going to take away the human factor. For example, while it may afford opportunities for content like you said you know wait times and and fast pass times maps things like that it's going to remove people from being able to interact with cast members let alone one another and i think part of the fun of walt disney world especially for new visitors is the discovery is looking at the maps and deciding where to go and and exploring you know walking around and, and wandering the parks discovering all that they have to offer you know put the people in front of these screens staring at them all day they're going to become disconnected and they're going to spare they're really going to be spending time staring at those instead of enjoying time with one another and forgive me if i sound like i i'm preachy and soapboxy about it but i'm just trying not to take that that human element away um you know again while being a tech geek i, I love the idea in theory but i just don't necessarily think that, that i'd like to see it added uh, to the parks. I'd love to hear what you think. Let me know. You can send an email to lou at wdwradio.com. Call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW or post on the forums at disneyworldtrivia.com. Our next email says, Lou, I love your show. What's the name of that non-Disney resort near the Caribbean beach? I can research the history of the place on the web, but maybe you know the rest of the story. Thanks. And that's from Pat. Pat, I think um, you're probably referring to the Bonnet Creek Resort And that parcel of land was one of the ones that was not able to be acquired by Disney back in the late 60s, early 70s. It really borders Disney property on three sides and is now home to a timeshare property, which is owned by the Fairfield Resorts. You should notice that because it is not a Disney resort, if you do stay there, guests have no Walt Disney World hotel guest privilege. So there's no extra magic hours. There's no bus service. There's no Magical Express. It's really very, very much disconnected totally not a part of the Walt Disney World hotel system. Jeremy writes in and says, here's a question that's always been in my mind, but never really something that needed to be answered until now. My son is three years old and hates anything on his head, glasses, hats, you name it. So we never took him to see a 3D movie at the theme parks, which means I miss Muppets every time we go. Now they're designing a Buzz-like ride, my son's favorite ride he calls Pow Pals, and I don't know if this is a ride he'd love to go on. The ride, of course, is Midway Mania. Here's a ride that's designed for young kids, but with 3D glasses. Will they enjoy the ride without the 3D glasses? I know it's hard to answer considering it's not open yet, but let's say I take him to Muppet Vision 3D. Would he be able to enjoy the movie or will it be too blurry? 
Thanks for answering. And thanks for a great show week after week after week after week. Uh, Jeremy, thank you for the question. And it's a very good question because it's something that uh, not only affects kids that can't wear glasses, but affects a lot of people that actually wear glasses maybe and don't wear contacts. Uh, and if you do try and do it without wearing glasses and you can, um, you're really going to see kind of two images overlapping each other because that's the way the 3D films are shot and processed. Um, I, I think you can still enjoy it. I think you can still get something out of it, but I think it, it may be very, very distracting. Uh, you might want to try looking up some 3D movies, maybe like Muppet Vision on YouTube. Maybe you can and see if somebody's videotaped it, get an idea of what it would look like. Uh, you know, the other concern, too, is it could, because it's a relatively long show, it could possibly cause some dizziness, dizziness nausea, etc., depending. So I would judge accordingly and see, you know, how your kid reacts uh, when you try and get him in there and see, um, see how they do. Lou, someone here remarked to me the other day that Louisiana was Disney's first choice for locating his theme park, the Magic Kingdom, I assume. But he didn't want to deal with the Louisiana legislature, which is widely seen as corrupt at worst, inept at best. Is this true? Best Gordon. Uh, Gordon, Louisiana, Louisiana and a bunch of other states were mentioned as possible choices for Walt's second park after Disneyland. Although really, St. Louis was probably closer to being where he wanted to go than others. And for a variety of reasons, it never came to pass. But now, as I, while I can't speak to the Louisiana political system, either then or now, I'm sure there were probably a ton of factors that, that may have prevented uh, uh, Disney from going there. Hello, Lou. Regards from the UK. My wife and I are having a friendly disagreement regarding the first time we visited Walt Disney World in October 1993. When we went to visit the Disney MGM Studios, we watched a show at the Backlot Theater. My wife thinks it was Beauty and the Beast show. I'm sure it was the Hunchback of Notre Dame. I remember the theater did not have a roof on the, at that time, and it was so hot that some of the audience left halfway through the show due to the heat. Would it be possible for you to settle the argument? Whilst I have been typing this, I have been listening to your radio show. I also have your books. I find these very helpful. How do you find time to do all the work? We're now looking forward to September when we're visiting Florida again for the seventh time. Many thanks. Your work is much appreciated. And that comes from Don Wright. Don, thank you for the question. And I'm sorry to say that you're going to have to find a way to tell your wife that she was incorrect. And my best advice is to be nice and tactful. But the Hunchback of Notre Dame show premiered at the Backlot Theater on June 21st, 1996, of course, to coincide with the release of the animated film. Really, this film, this, this show was only supposed to run for about a year, a year uh, after which it was going to be replaced by a Hercules show, which never came to pass. And actually what they ended up doing was a Hercules Zero to Hero parade instead. This show ended on September 28th, 2002, and your question got me thinking, because one of the things I remembered that was really notable about the show was the juggler, uh, who kind of came out before the show started and was a warm-up, and if you remember the juggler, if you enjoyed him, he actually is now on the boardwalk. You can see him on the promenade, usually at night, and to uh, answer your quick question quickly about how do I find time to do all the work, um, Time sleep is basically a luxury that I, I do not partake in all that much, but on to the next email, it says, Lou... I was wondering if you could help with a quick question. We are from the UK. It's UK night here on the WDW radio show. And visiting the world in August of this year. My daughter is currently taking her final year exams and will not be at home when the results are released. However, she can get her results online. Where is the best place to go to get internet access? We don't want to bring a laptop with us if we can help it, but may be the best option. Can we get full internet access on the computers in the Disney Quest Cafe, or is there a much better option? The new show is great. Keep up the good work and see you at the half marathon. 
Thank you for the question and uh, looking forward to see you there as well. As far as internet access in and around the resorts, you can get access in your room if you do have a computer or laptop. That's available for $9.95 a night at all the resorts on property. You can also get Wi-Fi at many locations. That's about $5 for an hour or $10 or um, about $9.95 for 24 hours. I think your best bet, though, if you don't want to bring your laptop, is probably go over to one of the many business centers that are located around property. They, they're at uh, Coronado Springs, Grand Floridian, the Contemporary. If you're near downtown Disney, it's at the Hilton. Uh, I don't think it's really at most of the moderates, certainly not at any of the um, value resorts, to my knowledge. It's probably There probably is one over at the Swan and Dolphin as well where you can probably rent computer time uh, over there as well. Lisa from Wisconsin writes in and says, I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy your podcast on Mondays. It's a great way to start my week. The show's great, and I especially love the Walt Disney sounds you start each podcast with. It gives me a minute to feel like I'm at the world. I haven't been to Walt Disney World since 2001 and I'm going through serious withdrawals. I have a question, though. Do you know if they're going to have any Epcot 25-year merchandise? Thanks for the feel of Disney you provide. Have a great week. Well, Lisa, thank you for your question. And unfortunately, as of now, the only kind of real 25th anniversary related merchandise that I saw the last time I was there last month were some kind of retro style shirts over at Mouse Gear. Nothing saying um, or acknowledging Epcot's 25th at all. However, time for me to shamelessly plug our friend Jeff Pepper from the show because he's got an awesome set of Epcot 25th stuff that he created. Uh, I'll put a link up in the show notes, but if you go to his blog at 2719hyperion.blogspot.com and the store over there, he's got a bunch of different designs and a really, really wonderful logo kind of uh, celebrating Epcot's 25th, and I, I think you really enjoy that. Lou, love the show. I just found out that Disney no longer offers e-ride nights. It's been a couple of years since I had taken advantage of this great little-known offer. Why they discontinue this offering? I find it interesting that they discontinue this pay event of sorts, especially since it was always well-attended each time my family took advantage of it. I've noticed an increased offering of extra magic hours lately, maybe as a replacement for the e-ride option. Love to hear your thoughts. Keep up the great work. Yours in the mouse, Mike. And he's PDTBP. You 21 in the forums. Uh, Mike, thank you for the question, and I'll kind of give you a little quick history on E-Ride Nights and, and where the name came from was probably the good way to start. E-Ride Nights, the name came from the old A through E ticketing system that I talked about on the old show, where E-Rides were really the best of the bunch when they had to use the old coupon system. And E-Ride Nights was a promotion that Disney offered. Only those guests who were staying on property in a Walt Disney World resort and who purchased a multi-day admission pass they would be qualified to then be able to purchase a voucher for e-ride nights, which they could exchange for wristbands at the parks. They were offered several times a month, sometimes even once or twice a week, uh, depending on the time of year and how how busy it was. But during e-ride night, the Magic Kingdom was closed to the general public at a designated hour, much like they do now with extra magic hours. But those people who had bought the e-ride wristbands would have access to about nine special e-ride attractions for three hours. These included things like uh, Splash Mountain, Big Thunder, uh, Haunted Mansion, Buzz Lightyear, Space Mountain, Pirates of the Caribbean. TTA was actually one of them, too. Um, There was also some character meet and greets during this time. You can find it over by Splash Mountain. I remember there was also by uh, Cinderella Castle as well. And they would only let in 5,000 people. And this was the real advantage. You would have to pay about $12 per person, but they would only allow 5,000 people in. So you don't run into some of the problems that you run into with extra magic hours. Now, if they let's think about it this way. If they were to sell every single ticket 
at $12. You're looking at, a, at about $60,000 in additional revenue for that day. They really only had to keep nine attractions in open. There was actually some of the lands were actually closed, so you couldn't even really get through them. So they didn't have to pay, uh, you know, a, a ton of cast members to stay. Now, they discontinued E-Ride Night in August of 2004, and they started Extra Magic Hours in January 2005. Now, while I do miss the... Um, the E-Ride Night, they, they did kind of transition over to this Extra Magic Hours, which I enjoy, um, although they do allow so many more guests in because it's free, because it's open to any guest who's staying on property. Uh, you, you do see a lot more. Uh, why they did it, I, I really can't understand. Maybe, you know, they, they did the math and found out that by letting more people in actually for free, it probably translated into more money for Disney based on food or souvenirs or them staying longer. Who knows? Uh, and really, the, the difference, again, like I said, between Extra Magic Hours and E-Ride Nights is Extra Magic Hours are part of that it's built into the Magic Your Way vacation plan, which is introduced in 2005. There's morning and evening Extra Magic Hours. Morning, uh, a certain Disney park of the week, uh, of the day, I'm sorry, opens up an hour early or stays open an extra three hours at night. So if you are staying at the resort, you can uh, get three hours extra in the parks. Uh, more attractions usually are open than the nine or so that would be open during e-ride nights. And all you really need now is just your key to the world card in order to get in. Then you can kind of go and get a wristband and, uh, and be able to stay in the park for the extra three hours. I received many responses to the email I read, uh, I guess it was last week, about being a guy's guy and loving Disney, much like this one from Steve, who writes, I just heard Adam's letter tell him he's not alone. I, too, am a guy's guy. I can't stand the Yankees, which makes me that much prouder to be a Marlins fan. I'm a real estate closing agent, and my office is full of baseball, football, basketball, hockey, and Disney memorabilia, including a Pirates of the Caribbean big fig statue, as well as a saluting Mickey statue. Therefore, many of the conversations with my clients are on the topic of Walt Disney World. Also, we have a group of seven couples with children between the ages of 6 and 13 who we always spend the bulk of our time with. They all think that my wife and I are nuts for going to Walt Disney World so often they don't understand why we go so many times a year. But their children all think we're the coolest. That's why, after hearing their kids complain that they never get to go, the gang has decided to take a trip this November. Of course, they made us the event planners, and I'm getting our info ready so that I can contact a Magical Gatherings representative. Anyway, getting back to my point, no, Adam, you are not alone in your love of the world. You should, however, reconsider your love of the Yankees, at least this year. Proud to be a Disney geek, Steve M. Steve, thank you for the email. And again, that's kind of representative of a number of emails that I received this week. Um, So be proud to be a Disney fan. and, And remember, as I say all the time, either people get it, you know, and the people who get it, understand why you go back every year. And the people who don't say, you know, you're going back to Disney again this year, like you, my office is filled with Disney memorabilia. Uh, I also have copies of my books there. And invariably, anytime I have somebody come in uh, that's never been there before, the conversation always ends up turning to Disney because it is a kind of a unifying factor. You know, people, either they love it and they get it or they've been there before, they've they've been as a kid or they're getting ready to take their kids for the first time. So uh, like you, it always becomes a topic of conversation. Next email says, Lou, I've been a Disney lover since I went to Walt Disney World for the first time in 1986 when I was 14 years old. I always looked forward to the day I could bring my children to experience the amazing things at Walt Disney World. Now, I'm the father of a one and a half year old daughter, and I was wondering what do you feel is the right age for a first time visit to Walt Disney World with her? I don't want to bring her too young, however, I really want her to experience the magic at an age where, to her, it's still magic. 
What age would you recommend? And that's from Jim in Staten Island. Jim, I think that's a great question, and it's really the subject of much debate. And I think the answer really may depend on whether you have small children or not, you know, among other things. I think people without children often say that, you know, taking your kids, you know, you can't take them that they're they're too young and they're not going to remember and what a pain it probably is to lug them around and they don't like hearing the kids crying and it, it, it you know, you're going for yourself, you're not really going for your kids. Uh, me personally, I took my daughter when she was nine months. Um, does she remember? Probably not. Although any memory she might have maybe jumbled with a six or so time that she's been there since. Yes, I wanted to brainwash her early, but you know, my wife and I, have memories of taking her and watching her reaction to the characters and the sounds of the parade and the fireworks and and the lights and the all the other audio and visual stimulation that she got that that she really definitely seemed to enjoy again although she probably won't remember now not everybody's kids may react that way not every kids may be able to ride an attraction or might react to the loud noises of the fireworks but i felt and my wife felt that we thought this was a good way to introduce them early to being able to see the big character head so they're not afraid of it when they first see it maybe when they're three or four or five and get used to the noises like fireworks etc and you know i'm very fortunate because when my kids get tired they just fall asleep in the stroller and they kind of even allowed us to kind of walk around spend some time together and ride some of the attractions one at a time of course we didn't just leave the kids in the stroller but i i understand that not everybody's like that not everybody's kids are like that and you must be courteous and respectful of the other people on vacation. If your kid is crying or, or if they're tired or they're rambunctious, excuse yourself from where you are. Have some courtesy and respect for the other people who are there, especially if you're in a show or an attraction. Uh, there's plenty of places that you can go and be alone with the kids where they can sleep, where a woman can nurse, where they can run around. Uh, all the baby care centers and all the four theme parks are wonderful, uh, especially the ones, I think, in... Uh, Epcot and the Magic Kingdom are just excellent. The staff is there. You can get anything that you need, whether it be formula, diapers, uh, there's changing stations, there's places that they can play, there's places they can sit, run around. They have uh, Disney movies on all the time. Very, very well staffed. Uh, I can't speak highly enough about it, but I guess this really boils down to a personal choice. What do you feel comfortable with? You know, are you comfortable taking your kids on vacation? Would I take my kids at that age in the middle of the summer? In the middle of July, maybe when it's 110 degrees and very crowded and very hot and humid, probably not, you know, because of some additional considerations you have to make there just to make sure that, that they're hydrated and that they don't get overheated. But, uh, you know, taking them maybe in the off times a year, maybe take them during the little ones travel time when there's, there's that extra time that you can get up early, take them out to the park for a few hours and just start to introduce them to things. Um, again, I'm a big proponent of, of taking them early. It's, it's just as much for you as it is for them. So, again, I guess it just kind of boils down to a personal choice. I think I'll end this week's email section with another question that actually has to deal with kids in a little bit of a different sense. And this says, Hi, Lou. I'm a new listener, and I wanted to say how much I enjoy the show. I'm not able to make it down to Disney this year, and I'm not sure if listening to your show is making that easier or harder. We've been DVC members since 1995, and this year, both of our college-age girls are using our points to take separate trips down to see the mouse. When we bought DVC membership, we wondered if the kids would still enjoy visiting Disney years later, and the answer is a resounding yes. We've moved a lot, and I think having our Disney home to go back to every few years has been one constant in their lives. It's fun to watch my daughters plan their trips with our family traditions in mind. One of these is always eating at the Cape May Cafe. 
We were lucky enough to stay at the beach club during the first month it opened back when the kids were three and five, and they've never forgotten that first meal at the Cape May Cafe. Sorry to ramble on, but I did actually have a question for you. During one of the first shows I listened to, you mentioned a website that gave estimates for daily attendance at the parks. I was wondering if you could repeat that site's name. Thanks. And that's from Tracy in Chicago, Illinois. Tracy, thank you. And I think you kind of uh, helped make my point a little bit that, you know, taking your kids to Walt Disney World and establishing these traditions and and having a place that you can all call home really uh, has an effect later on in life because maybe there, there are some times when they're teenagers and maybe it's not as cool to go to Disney, but invariably they do go back and they go back with their children, much as I did, kind of with a different mindset, but keeping those memories of going with their parents, much as I do. But to answer your question, I am unfortunately going to have to shamelessly plug Len Testa from the unofficial guide, Ding. Uh, His website is touringplans.com. There they have a crowd calendar where you can get a day-by-day estimate of exactly what the crowds are going to be like. There's a scale from 1 to 10, with 10 obviously being the most crowded of days. Again, that's touringplans.com, and I'll put that link up in the show notes. And please tell Mr. Testa that I said hi. Well, I think that's all the time we have for emails this week. Again, if you have sent me an email in the past and have not heard back from me via email as yet, I promise I will get to it in the upcoming weeks on the show. Don't forget, if you want to send an email with a question or a comment, anything you'd like to talk about, send it to lou at wdwradio.com. You can also call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. I want to thank my guests, Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com, as well as Gary Chambers from the mouselounge.com podcast for coming on the show. Of course, thanks to you for coming back and tuning in once again. I hope you enjoy this week's show. Don't forget to visit the wdwradio.com website for our show notes, relevant links, older episodes, and the new WDW Radio Show merchandise shop. On upcoming shows, We're going to cover the next in the seven wonders of Walt Disney World, have another look back at an original Epcot pavilion, have some more contests, more trivia, fact or fiction segments, special guests, interviews, and more. Listen over the next couple of weeks for an announcement of something new coming to the show that will run, literally, for quite some time and afford you the opportunity to get involved and more. It's something special I think you're really going to like. This is going to be the last week for you to be able to get your thoughts and input in to the next of the Seven Wonders. That's going to be the cast members at Walt Disney World. I invite you to share your stories by calling the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW or sending an email. And if you have a suggestion as to what you think should be included and covered as one of the next of the Walt Disney World's Seven Wonders, let me know as well. I also want to direct you to our friends over at The Magic for Less Travel. I give them my highest recommendation if you're thinking about planning any vacation to any Disney destination. Contact them for a free, no-obligation quote. You can also learn more about their outstanding services, which are completely free to you. You've come to have a certain expectation level of what you get and what you do when you go to Disney, so you should really start off by dealing with a travel agent that affords you the same level of service and attention. You've heard one of the owners, Pam Forrester, on the show before, so that'll give you some type of idea of not only how much they know about Disney World, but how much they enjoy what they do as well. They have a number of promotions going on right now, so visit the WDWRadio.com website for more information and a link to contact them directly. 
I also want to bring your attention to another friend of the show, and that's Greg from MiceCast and Imagining My Way Podcasts. He let me know about a new Kingdom Photo Vault online store where they have prints from your favorite domestic Disney parks and resorts. You can check out KingdomPhotoVault.com for more information. Remember, you can also email me anytime with questions, comments, and suggestions to Lou at WDWRadio.com. Also, please come by the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com to talk with other listeners and readers about the show. We have a very close, warm, and very friendly, welcoming community there. I invite you to come by, check us out, and participate in some of the discussions we have going online. Also, while you're there, be sure to check out the entire DisneyWorldTrivia.com website. And don't forget that we still have our 2 for 20 promotion going on right now. That means you can get Volume 1 and Volume 2 of the Walt Disney World Trivia books signed and personalized for just 20 bucks. You'll find more information and links on the site there. That's going to do it this week. I want to thank you once again for tuning in, as well as, again, for all your reviews on iTunes, votes on Dig, etc. Please help spread the word to your friends, family, and on other communities. Have a wonderful week. Happy Father's Day. See ya. Just your iPod. We are in control. You are traveling into another dimension. A dimension of sight, a dimension of sound, and a dimension of mind. This, as you may recognize, is a podcast promo. But not just any podcast promo. This promo is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. You may be familiar with the All About the Mouse Disney podcast hosted by Brian Ripper. But that podcast is about to undergo a frightening change. Beginning in July 2007, the All About the Mouse Disney podcast welcomes a new co-host. None other than Jonathan Dichter, internet podcast voice guy and sarcasm nut extraordinaire. Also the owner of voiceofmousetunes.blogspot.com. So listen, if you dare, to the all-new All About the Mouse, starring Brian Ripper and Jonathan Dichter. Find out what lies beyond the fifth dimension at www.allaboutthemouse.com.